This is a Burn FM podcast. The Selly Sportscast from Redbrick and Burn FM. Your go-to for West Midlands sport. Hello and welcome to episode nine of the Selly Sportscast, your go-to place for the latest on sport from the University of Birmingham and the wider West Midlands area. I'm Kit, a Redbrick Sport Editor, and I'm joined by one of my fellow editors, Jack. Jack, how are you doing? Hi, Kit. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I am okay. It's getting to that time of year. We're in April. Dissertation's due soon. Exams are coming up. It's the, it's the business end, academically, isn't it? It is. It's definitely a stressful period for us all and stakes are high at the minute. And it's definitely weird doing all this studying and having these deadlines due, you know, during the pandemic. You know, we think back, it's, it's now a year ago since things started to lock down and shut down. And back then, I didn't think it, I'd be in this situation now. But yeah, I'm cracking on with my, my dissertation at the minute. How's things on your, your end? Not too bad on the dissertation front, thank you. It is strange doing it all digitally, as you say. It's probably a little bit easier, to be honest, I won't lie. I can't quite imagine how I managed to get through all those actual exams in person in a hall that we had to do at school mm. and, and a little bit of university for us too, as we're in third year, as long ago as that seems. Mm. But now just ticking over, nearly there. And most COVID news is positive, at least in the UK at the moment. So there is hope that, that things are going to keep improving on that front. Yeah, definitely. The news is more and more positive, which is what we like to see. And I think it's been nice having a break over Easter as well. Um, so, I, I mean, I've come back home, home for that. So it's been nice to sort of spend a bit more time with the family as, you know, the restrictions have eased as well. Yeah, I'm the same. It's good. I went home for a little bit. Anyway, enough about us. We have a really, really fascinating guest with us today. Ali Jawad, he's studying a PhD at the moment at the University of Birmingham, but he has achieved so much as a Paralympian in powerlifting. He's been world champion. He's won Paralympic medals and he's got an incredible story and he's just a brilliant person to listen to and to be inspired by as well. So we've really enjoyed speaking to him. We hope you enjoyed the interview as well. So let's get to it. We are now joined by a powerlifting legend. He is a veteran of three Paralympic Games and three Commonwealth Games, where he has medals in both. This man is also a European champion, a world champion. He has a hugely inspirational story, but by far the most important thing, he is studying a PhD at the University of Birmingham at the moment. Ali Jawad, welcome to the Selly Sportscast. Thanks for having me. No problem. We usually start these chats with guests with a little bit of an icebreaker. We usually ask what our guest's favourite sport is, but I think that might be a bit obvious with you. So actually, no, you, it's probably football. Is it not? Is it, is it football? Okay, yeah, I was guessing weight. I was guessing weightlifting, but no, that's my job. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> we saw on your on our obviously extensive research for this interview that you're a Liverpool fan. So unfortunately, this year, yes. Yeah. How are you feeling after the result on Tuesday? Obviously, we're recording this after the first leg in Madrid, three-one loss for Liverpool think you can turn it around um i think we've been in worse situations and i think i always fancy us on a european night against anybody 
It's whether or not, obviously, without the crowd, would that would that be a difference? I don't know. I'm hoping the players can raise their game uh, next week. Yeah, you are also with Jack, who's a Manchester United fan, and myself as a Southampton fan. So, mm. oh god, neither of us like Liverpool that much, no. obviously, for extremely different reasons. Jack's is probably a little bit more mm. legitimate than <laughs> me just getting angry at you stealing our players. But yeah, Jack, how did how did you feel watching Liverpool go down in Madrid on Tuesday? It was quite a good viewing, to be honest. I've enjoyed Liverpool's uh, little dip in form, but I'll let Ali off uh, for saying he's a Liverpool fan, though. But but yeah, I mean, we've not got loads to shout about as a United fan at the minute, but I think that's, it's got to the point where we take pride in City and, and Liverpool losing, which isn't great as a United fan. It's, it shows how far we've declined over the years. <laughs> yeah, any, anyway, Ali, yeah. So we wanted to start off by you telling us a little bit about your background and your um, journey into powerlifting basically how you got into the sport so I guess um to put some context behind it when I was about six uh I watched the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta uh, on TV um and I watched somebody called Michael Johnson win his uh historic 200 and 400 meter gold medals it's not been repeated mm-hmm. uh, so I knew I was witnessing something quite incredible and I wanted to be like Obviously, on top of the podium, I wanted to be like him and what he was feeling. But I knew that having no legs, I couldn't run like him. So I had to find a sport that I was good at. So I was about 11 when I started uh, judo. Uh, did it for about four years in school and realized that um, there's no category for me at the Paralympic Games. It's only open for the visually impaired and blind. Um, mm-hmm. So when I was 15, I had to quit judo uh, to focus on my GCSEs and uh it was actually during my GCSEs, I think after my maths exam, my friend forced me to go to the gym across the road from the school. And this gym was a proper Rocky Balboa style <laughs> montage gym. It was dirty. It was dusty. It was uh, loud. But I loved Rocky growing up. So I thought, this is my, this is amazing. And my first day that I was there, so I'd never touched a weight in my life. I benched 100 kilo. Wow. Got, got spotted by the owner and he said, look, you've got some talent. And he wanted to coach me to to see where I can get to and uh, within two years I was lucky enough to make the Beijing Paralympic Games so uh, yeah it was a it was a it was a fast track to to world-class sport and Rocky we think has stayed with you hasn't it if we look at your pre-lifting routine when competing yeah um the the soundtrack my my kind of routine pre-comp even pre-training the big training sessions are all Rocky it's not changed uh, I was lucky enough to meet the man in 2014, uh, 2017, I think. He, he's, he's more impressive in person. Uh, quite really? uh, quite remarkable, yeah. So uh, I, was, mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to meet him. I mean, I love the films as well. So, I mean, I'd love to meet, obviously, Rocky. And I love the theme tune. I think, you know, it, was, it made us both smile when we saw that it's like one of your little um, rituals before competing. We also wanted to talk a little bit about your background as well, you, sort of dealing with your disability growing up and moving over from Lebanon. If you'd like to expand on that sort of journey and coming over and adapting to, to life in, in the UK, as well as, you know, getting getting into powerlifting. Yeah, so I was born in um, uh, Lebanon at a time of uh, a lot of, like, civil unrest. Uh, the, war, the war was obviously, uh, well, it was just rife. And I, th- I think disabled people back then just, just weren't really a, a thing for, for, for the state. You, you didn't have a life if you're disabled in the 80s. So when I was born, obviously, like, I came out as a double-leg amputee, so I was born with my disability. And the, the, the kind of the doctor uh, took my dad aside and said, actually, do, do you want to get rid of it? Because disabled people just don't have a life. Lucky my parents said no, they kept me, and um, but they felt, they felt that for me to have a normal life, I needed to be in a country that's going to give me the opportunities that they thought I deserve. So uh, my uncle was actually working in the UK at the time, so we came over and, um, yeah, my, my parents created a new life here. 
but the one thing that I remember as a kid was my parents had the option of in, enrolling me to a special needs school or a mainstream school. And they thought, actually, he's only got a physical disability and uh, we want him to achieve his full potential. And they felt that mainstream school was where I was going to get that potential. But what they did was, was they enrolled me to schools that had no facilities, no ramps, no lifts, and they go, right, go and adapt. Uh, and mm-hmm. I did that every single day as a kid. And I thought that was normal. So um, yeah, I never really complained about no, no accessibility. I think I w- it wouldn't get, because health, health and safety now, we wouldn't get away with it. So for example, no. like I wouldn't be able to uh, crawl up the stairs and down the stairs and take my wheelchair <laughs> upstairs and down the stairs. It just wouldn't happen now. Uh, but back then it was it was a thing. And uh, I'm, I'm glad I did that because I felt that was normal and I adapted pretty well. Yeah. And do you think um, that kind of that experience, having to sort of adapt yourself and deal with it almost on your own whilst you're at school has helped you, you know, when you've competed late, later on in your career? I, I guess from the outside, you can probably say, oh, it probably has. But mm-hmm. for me, it was completely normal what I was doing on a daily basis. I didn't really know any different. So for me, like, I, I can see where, you know, if, if you're from the outside thinking that I've kind of had to get through lots of adversity, but at the time, for me, it wasn't adversity, it was just being normal. And that meant that actually I was confident in my ability to get through things quite comfortably, not complaining, getting on with it. And uh, lucky enough, I was in the popular groups in school, so nobody messed with me. That doesn't surprise me at all. Well, that... That resilience and that confidence that, that that gave you has definitely helped you in your powerlifting career. As I said at the top, you've had success at the Paralympics, you've won world titles, which just sounds amazing. And I guess for you, Ali, as a kid who once looked at Michael Johnson and dreamed of standing on the podium like he did, how does it feel when when you do set a world record or you do win a medal? It must must be absolutely exhilarating. It's really weird because um, the the one kind of gold medal that I dreamt of was a Paralympic one and that's the one that I haven't got but I've been on the podium every in every single other major so you know winning the world title on the Europeans being on top of the podium is amazing and um you know when I first broke the world record it was just like for me it was one of the best days best emotions you can possibly get it's very hard to replicate that however uh, it's not a Paralympic one and I think I'm gonna have to probably accept that um I'm gonna probably retire without a, a gold medal at the Paralympic Games and I've, I've always said that I think my pursuit of it, what I say to people is like, they shouldn't judge me on my medals that I've achieved. They should judge me on the fact that I never gave up with the cards that I dealt. I, I, I kind of squeezed every ounce of potential out of myself throughout my career with the, you know, with, with Crohn's. And um, unfortunately, I came short when it comes to a Paralympic gold, but I've got a Paralympic medal. And I guess that's, I'm going to have to, you know, kind of uh, accept that that was good enough. Yeah, I mean, Kit's obviously listed all your you know, great achievements there. And obviously there's so many of them. But we wanted to know what would you say was the single best achievement? I mean, you've obviously had um, good performances at the Paralympic Games, but obviously you won the gold at, at the World Championships. Would that be your greatest achievement, would you say? I think it would be, uh, if, you look, look, if you look back at my career, I think it would be kind of disrespectful to the other medals if I picked one, because they all have a very, very different story to them, uh, a backdrop. And they're all good in their own right because I've had to really earn them. I never got lucky once. So I think it would be unfair to um, say that one meant more than the other one. But my best career performance on paper is probably when I Mm. broke the world record twice in Glasgow at the Commonwealth Games in 2014. When I broke Mm -hmm. the world record twice and it it was one of the the lifts of my life. So um, I guess on paper, that's the one that people look at and go, well, that's amazing. But I can't really separate the medals in terms of what it took to get them. Another thing that I find really interesting about events like the Paralympics 
or even the Commonwealth Games, it's, it's such an immersive experience for the athletes. You like you go to a place and you're surrounded by everyone else who's competing. You really get integrated with the people you're around in the city you're in. Do you have the favourite games that you have done? Maybe not from how well you did, but just from kind of the atmosphere around it and where it was. Yes. So Rio has to be special. Like Rio is beautiful. Um, mm. Obviously, but my private civil was there too, but, but Rio was was amazing. It was like a like a party, like uh, for the whole duration. It was just that party feel to it. Uh, it was fun. The Commonwealth Games in Australia in 2018 was was amazing because uh, I love Australia. So yeah, different performances, but two of my two of my favourite games, I think. And obviously the World Championships in Dubai because Dubai is my favourite place in terms of place. That, that's where I want to retire to eventually, the dream. Mm-hmm. But like, uh, yeah, like them three countries probably stand out for me. Yeah, you've been to some, obviously been to some great places, you know, competing. But you've obviously, like you mentioned, also had your fair share of setbacks over the past decade. So we wanted to go back to the night before your Paralympic debut in, in Beijing, because that was when one of your biggest challenges, you know, soon became apparent. Yeah, so... Um... I was obviously 19 at the time and uh, mm. I was I hadn't really faced anything challenging in my career. So obviously, obviously been like, I was two years into the sport, but it was, I was fast-tracked and I was at the top, top level pretty much straight away um, and not faced anything that was challenging at the time. And kind of coming into the games, I was there for the experience, not really to medal, but three days before the competition, I lifted a weight that would have won bronze on the, on the day. So I was, mm. I was in great shape uh, and nobody knew I was coming in terms of, you know, the numbers I was hitting. The, the night before, it was probably after, probably dinner, I think, and uh, started feeling quite sick, not myself. Uh, didn't know what was wrong with me. Uh, so I got rushed in to see the doctor. And uh, at, at the time, they thought it was just, uh, you know, a f- f- flu, mm. maybe, f- maybe food poisoning from the you know, from the food hall. Because mm. obviously you're, you're in a confined space with a lot of people of different habits. It's just how it is. And I felt I was just unlucky, maybe, but I felt that actually I did everything I possibly can to reduce that. So something else was wrong. And obviously, as an athlete, you do train through colds and flus. You just do. So overnight, in the well, I was on the toilet for all night, basically. Uh, I was really ill, dehydrated, sweaty. My stomach was hurting, achy, fatigued. Lost about three kilo overnight in body weight, which is wow. not great. Next day, we were, we we're going to pull me out. And I said, no, I've, I've worked hard to get here. I'm going to just, you know, compete and, you know, attempt not to come last. And uh, yeah, I competed, didn't come last, but uh, uh, I was about seven kilo away from my personal best. And uh, that personal best would have got me a medal that day. So what I did was I felt that I was unlucky, but I knew that I was very, very like young enough to come back and uh, be at a top level in, in, in future games. So yeah, um, I didn't know what was wrong until probably about nine months later. And when I got diagnosed with Crohn's. Yeah, it sounds just a, a brutal experience. How tough was that decision to compete on the, like you've given us loads of detail about what went on, but I, I assume kind of your body was screaming one thing at you and your head saying something completely different. Like this, this is the pinnacle. This is what you've worked for for so long. Was uh, that, yeah. yeah, was it a tough decision or were you pretty hell bent on competing, whatever? Yeah, like uh, there's no way anybody's going to deny me to compete on the day. Like I said, like you haven't sacrificed uh, all that hard work that you know the last well since I was six to try and get there, and then suddenly to pull out because of well at, at the time I thought it was just a cold or, or a flu, so I thought it's just you know I'm just going to get on with it. And I was so fatigued. I remember I was so fatigued on the day that I actually failed 170, 170 kilo in warm up. I don't know how on earth I got through that day, uh, but I managed to get 182 kilo and a half uh, on the day. 
which, you know, yeah, 190 was my best. But, um, you know, for me, I took it and, uh, you know, I knew that I was about seven to eight years younger than anybody else in that final. So, you know, for me, it was kind of comparing myself to them at that age. And I knew that I was way better. So it was, you were still optimistic at the time, but obviously afterwards you were diagnosed with Crohn's disease and which is obviously far from ideal. But in 2009, you were forced to retire, which again, being so young must've been crushing for you. But in 2010, you had an operation, which was a, a bit of a game change for you. Is that right? Yeah. So um, when I got, when I got diagnosed, there were discussions that, you know, re- retirement was on the cards. Um, it's, it's like, they didn't have any sort of data on elite athletes with Crohn's. Also as well, no Crohn's suffered at the time. So 2009 had ever won a medal at any Olympic or Paralympic Games. So what I was doing was just completely like, you know, it's, it's just not been done. So by 2009, I'd lost 25 kilo in body weight, really sick, haven't trained since Beijing. Tried to train and just, I just kept passing out in the gym. So I wasn't allowed back in. And yeah, I had to make the choice of uh, just focusing on my health and kind of retired from the sport uh, for about two years to try and get my health in check. And the, yeah, the operation, I was rushed in because I had a massive flare. And um, it, yeah, the operation saved my life. But at the time, we didn't know if I was going to live through the operation. But I knew if I did... It was gonna. It might give me another shot. And uh, with 2012 coming, at my, you know, in my home city, I felt that I couldn't let the parade go by and me sitting in the stands. So um, I had to go for it against medical advice. I mean, it's obviously remarkable that you, you know, recovered and made it to London 2012 after that. But then also with the, the following achievements, you know, you you made as well. And there was a similar there's a similar break in the last few years recently you had after Rio 2016 spent 18 months out of out of com- competing but obviously you you've bounced back and you know you're on track to to compete in Tokyo how's the pandemic been for you and has it has it been a bit of a blessing in disguise almost yeah so after Rio I had the biggest flare up of, of my career I guess I think you say that I'm on track for Tokyo. I'm actually not. I might not even qualify. Okay. I, I'm not. I'm not the person that mm-hmm. I used to be. And uh, the the decisions that I've had to take the last three years with my health means that uh, I've potentially put myself at a massive disadvantage on purpose to try and get there because of um, we're taking a route that it isn't. You know, it's, it's quite risky to to try and get there. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I'll make the games, but my application doesn't change. Um, I'm hoping to still make it. But mm-hmm. if the games were last year, I would not have made it at all. Um, so the extra year has given me a chance, but um, I don't know how big of a chance that's given me because um, I'm st- I haven't, I haven't still qualified. So I've got one more shot in June. It's quite interesting that you you say you've taken this risk, you know, this risk to your health to try and get there to Tokyo. And you've taken these risks over the last 10 years to, to get um, in shape for competitions. What makes you take these risks? Is it just that the ambition to get more and more medals? I think from the outside, you probably think mm. it is. But from, for, for me personally, I it's not it's not about the medal. It's about, and I think this is just, it just represents life. You're going to aim for something. It's going to mm. be very, very difficult. And you're going to be presented with a lot of unexpected challenges. It's whether or not you walk away from the fight or you take it to it and see how much you can push it to the limit. And I think I'm probably now this time pushing Crohn's to limits that no human's ever pushed it. And I think that's the ambition and not the medal because I don't think I will medal this year at all I think uh when people speak to me about medals I'm like actually I'll probably be nowhere near but if I get there that's an achievement in itself that is my medal uh, and we'll see what happens on the day yeah I think that's part of the essence of the Olympics and especially the Paralympic Games obviously everyone there is desperate to win and get a gold medal but 
a lot of the achievement is just getting there. So Ali, obviously we're a University of Birmingham podcast and you are studying at UOB at the moment. And we're very proud to have you here. How's it been so far? I guess it's been pretty much all digital for you, but how have you found the studying and your time at UOB? Now, so, so before the uh, pandemic, I think I've visited Birmingham probably three times because the obviously like the sports facilities are now world class now. I was very impressed with the kind of the future direction of where sport was going at a more elite level. But obviously with the games, the Commonwealth Games being in Birmingham as well, it just made sense that I did go there. But also Birmingham is known to be one of the best anti-doping uh, research unis in the country so for me it just like it made perfect sense because obviously my PhD is in anti-doping and Panopic sport so I knew I was coming to a very very good university so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of lucky that I got accepted and I'm uh, studying but yes it has been digital but I had a lot of help it's actually been quite dare I say quite easy uh, so yeah like um, I've coasted through it so I think it's because of I know the subject and um, I'm, I'm very passionate about it and when I'm passionate about something I give it everything so yeah I've been quite lucky in that sense yeah, and anti-doping or, or doping has been such a big issue across sport in the last five years or so. You think of all the stuff that came out of Russia. You think of Richard Freeman at the moment with oh, God, cycling. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's all going on. And weightlifting as well, sadly, hasn't been immune to it either with people like Tamas Ajan being criticised, people from Russia again, Egypt being banned as well. What your, What's your PhD work specifically involve and how does it stop these doping scandals yeah so my phd is specific not to olympic sports uh, but to paralympic sports so um I, i'd say that even though paralympians are subjected to the same standards testing standards as the olympic sports there are two other practices in para sport uh, that are cheating that are not actually in the WADA code, in the World Anti-Doping Code. Um, and they're, they're, they're not as regulated as substance doping. So I want to compare uh, substance doping and these other two methods in parasport and see what the prevalence rates are and see whether or not they should be in the code as well for more protection for athletes. That's really interesting. You don't really think about the differences between able-bodied athletes and para-athletes, but yeah, it's definitely something that... It needs to be flagging, especially as I say, with how much of a conversation doping is at the moment. And just a kind of wider question on doping, as it's something you say you're passionate about. Can sport ever be totally clean? And that might sound quite a pessimistic thing to ask, or rather than making people change their attitudes, will you always need to be doing research and devising new technology to essentially catch people out? That's a good question. So I think we need to maybe kind of think about the term clean um is it substances or is it cheating and if it's cheating then it's an integrity issue and should doping or anti-doping be part of integrity rather than just having a regulator that deals with substance doping um so there's a lot of research at the moment that um kind of tries to define what what clean is um but personally like for me um, when you are talking about elite sport at the top level um, with the rewards at stake, um, you're not going to be 100%. You're not going to be able to eradicate doping or cheating. Uh, people want to always have an advantage. It's just how what human behavior is. But what you can do is that you should listen to the athletes on the ground because they've got the best knowledge and the experience of what really goes on. 
uh, and you make the rules so harsh uh, or so strict that it's very, very hard to cheat the system. Uh, unfortunately, um, we know that athletes don't dope by themselves. They have people around them that help them do that. Uh, and that means that uh, athletes need to be better protected uh, in order to um, compete fairly. And that means making sure that, you know, for example, that the Russian doping scandal, Russia got away scot-free, didn't they? Pretty much. Mm. Um, and that was, but the people uh, at WADA think because of their PR strategy, oh yeah, we won, but you didn't. Uh, you actually, you know, Russia uh, literally got only were banned for about 80 days in total. Uh, and somebody that took a recreational drug, we ban more. Think about it. Um, it's just, yeah, it's scandalous. I think the system doesn't really want to protect athletes. They just want to protect their image. Uh, and unfortunately, it needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. And very relevant as well, I think, with the stuff I mentioned about British cycling that could be really dangerous to people's reputations as well, considering the success that that programme has achieved. But we will look forward now and you've talked a bit about your hopes for Tokyo we hope you you can get there and get one final Paralympics in maybe but next year we've got the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham which you've mentioned as well we're really excited to have it as as students in Birmingham what do you think it can do for the city and yeah how's it going to just impact the local area I think I've been lucky that I've experienced the home games in London and and for you know, for one month, London was absolutely buzzing. Um, I've never seen London like that. Uh, everyone's smiling. Everyone's saying hi to each other. Um, everyone's just like celebrating together. And I feel like that will probably transfer to Birmingham uh, f- for about you know f- for two weeks of, of sport. Um, I think it will reunite Birmingham or, or, the, or the Midlands. Um, mm. And I feel like it will be the centre of attention or the centre of the world for for two weeks. And that's pretty special for a city to be able to to, to be that centre of attention. Uh, and you're also going to have world-class athletes coming to Birmingham competing. And, and that's, and you have to go see that. Um, not, not cause I'm potentially competing. You don't want to see me. I'll be too old by then. <laughs> Heard it here first. Um, and also you you sit on the Commonwealth Games England board as an athlete's representative as well. What do you do in that role? So, so my job is to basically give uh, an athlete kind of, um, opinion on everything that goes on um, with how the games are run, how policies are made, um, the the potential like training camps, if they were going to have one, how do we communicate with athletes, just every single aspect of how a Commonwealth Games is create, like created. Um, you've got an athlete voice there that, that's been there and, and, and done it and mm-hmm. kind of can speak to athletes outside of that to make sure that everything's been thought of for the athletes. So basically just having a games that is very, very athlete uh, central, uh, but also mm. ma- making sure that um, it, you know it's the best environment to to compete and watch you know top sport. Yeah, it's definitely important that the um, the organisers listen to the voice of you know athletes when they're organising it. And then going back to you, to yourself, what does the future hold for you um, beyond um, you know the next few years? I'd say after the Commonwealth Games next year, the plan is to um, probably well. You might call it retirement. I'm going to call it a sabbatical where I'm going to have an indefinite break from elite para sport to try focus on my health to find a solution because uh, I can't do what I've done the last four years. Again, it's not sustainable. Um, so I also I'm on my team. Um, but um, obviously, I'm going to try to finish that PhD um, afterwards and 
yeah, this year I'm launching, uh, well, pretty much the first ever fitness app, uh, especially des- designed for people with impairments. Um, it's, I don't think it's ever been done this way. So quite exciting, a big task, because mm-hmm. um, we know that different impairments are different and uh, they, they face different challenges. Um, but I thought like, you know, if, if I'm not going to do it, then who is? And I think I'm more informed than a lot of people to do it. So yeah, filming starts uh, this month and the app is actually nearly finished. It's been a year in the making. So yeah, it's been um, it's, mm. it's been a roller coaster ride with the app. And that'll be available on the app store or, or whatever the Android equivalent is. Yes. Uh, yeah. In the summer, hopefully. COVID depending because COVID has derailed a few things, but um, we're trying to get through it. <laughs> Uh, that's the caveat you have to have for everything at the moment but hopefully it's it's getting better on the COVID front but Ali thank you so much for giving up some of your time this afternoon me and Jack have really enjoyed speaking to you you're a fascinating individual you've had a brilliant career and a really inspiring story so we're really grateful to speak to you I don't think you gave a clear answer earlier on the Liverpool Real Madrid prediction for the second leg so in one word Will Liverpool be in the semi-finals this year? Um, well, I guess you know. I guess I have to practice what I preach. Uh, so yes, they, they will be. Um, I think they're going to win two 0 That's back your team, aren't you? You have the back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have the back uh, in Klopp we trust, and I think I think uh, the criticism he's face is ridiculous. Like uh, I remember what he used mm. to be like before him, and uh, I definitely appreciate what he's done. This Don't podcast get. will be coming out probably after the second leg so you will either look like a genius or maybe not so much but we will see <laughs> but again thank you so much Ali it's been great to speak to you and Thanks, all the best for the future thank you so that was Ali Jawad there with his inspiring story about his um powerlifting career um, great to hear um, some insight from him into his time at the Paralympics Commonwealth Games and World Championships and also his time at, at UOB as well. Um, Kit what did you think about the interview? Really inspiring stuff, I thought it was a great person to speak to as we said, he's achieved a lot he's been through a lot and he's a great person to have at UOB and he was also very positive about the Commonwealth Games which I like because as we've said before in his podcast, the Commonwealth Games hasn't had the smoothest of rides, at least for Birmingham 2022. So glad he said that as well. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, so now we want to look at, um, as we normally do on this podcast, West Midlands sport and what's been happening um, in the region over the last few weeks or so. Um, so firstly, we wanted to talk about West Brom, who had a fantastic victory against Chelsea um, the other weekend. Uh, they beat Chelsea 5-2, um, thanks to goals from Pereira, um, Robinson and, and Diagne. Um, they're obviously helped by the fact that Chelsea went down to 10 men early on. But I do think it'll be one of those games where whatever happens to West Brom this season, they'll look back on that um, with great pride. Um, did you watch the game, Kit? I watched parts of it. Once I saw mm. West Brom were... Two one up, I think. Yeah. I turned it on and then saw the last half half an hour or so, which was mm. carnage. I think you're right. They're still probably going to get relegated. This was I one of those so. bizarre results where everything went right for them. But still, it wasn't just the five two. They scored some brilliant goals. Definitely Sam Allardyce didn't mm. know he had it. A team managed by him would have it in them. 
especially mm. against a team like Chelsea. It was Thomas Tuchel's first and today only defeat as Chelsea manager. But yeah, Allardyce ball. Maybe it's the way forward. Mm, yeah, it was definitely um, a big Sam masterclass. <laughs> Robin, Robin, Robinson, Robinson's goal, um, I think that was the, the third goal, the, the, the first time volley. That was one of my uh, one of my favourites. And bizarrely, he's scored, I think, four goals this season and all four have been against Chelsea, I think. Um, and it's also mad as well that, you know, Chelsea were, everything was going smoothly for them under Tuchel. And then they go and concede five goals, which was very um, out of character. And going from West Brom to the Championship and to Birmingham City, Kit, you've got the latest on what's been going on there um, with the women's side. Yeah, so on the Rubric Sport website, we've had multiple articles in the last 12 months or so which are basically asking what the hell is going on at Birmingham City mainly behind the scenes as much as on the pitch it's been well documented that their men's side has been struggling near the bottom of the championship but what's been in the headlines recently is their women's team because there was a report earlier this week in the Telegraph detailing a letter that Birmingham women's first team had sent to to the Birmingham board they believe they've got unfair access to facilities they have inadequate travel inadequate medical provisions and it's kind of over the week just got worse the athletic reported yesterday that there are problems with agents of birmingham players there's accusations that birmingham women were kicked out of the training complex to make space for the under 12 boys team there's problems with contracts there's problems with players being told to play when they're unfit I'm going on here, but there's there's a lot that's come out in the last week and it's really not a good look on the club. Jack, we really want to see women's sport grow and especially women's football keep progressing as I think it start, is starting to in this country. But this really hasn't been a good week for the game and especially for Birmingham. No, it's definitely not been a good week. I mean, we've known for some time that at Birmingham there have been problems off the pitch with the ownership. And the fans of the men's side haven't been happy at all, but but the problems seem to have escalated for the women's for the women's team, and it's just not acceptable in today's day and age where we're seeing so many positive things happen. Man United, for instance, created a new a new women's team um, in the last few years. You know, really really positive developments. The, the Sky Sports deal for the WSL as well. Then to hear this news come out, it's it's not good for the game. And I think one thing that that I thought. It was good that came out of this was the fact that other players um, rallied around and, and, and have called out Birmingham City, Jude Bellingham, um, who we love to mention as a former Birmingham City player. He, he called it out on his Twitter. He retweeted a number of articles about it and, 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 and gave his support. Yeah, and obviously it's important to say that there's always two sides to this story. Birmingham mm. have come out and said they are struggling financially, which is true. And there may be... There may be some things which aren't totally their fault or aren't just a result of them disregarding their I women's mean, team um, in favour of the men's team. But mm. as you say, it's just not a great look, especially at a time when there has been so much positive news about women's football. I mean, it is easy to criticise Birmingham considering um, you know, what, what's happened over the last few years. There. But when you kind of um, praise Man United and Man City for what they've done with their women's side it's easy to praise them when they've had like so many you know the finances to sort of um, offer financial support to their women's side whereas for Birmingham to maintain you know a full-time women's team alongside theirs it's no excuse but obviously they're a championship side and their their sort of financial backing is completely different to 
the likes of Manchester United and Man City. Yeah, so Birmingham were quoted in the Telegraph saying, and I'm quoting here, it's no secret we have one of the lowest budgets in the league. COVID has only compounded this. This certainly makes it difficult to compete, but we're doing our best on and off the pitch and what's a very difficult time for professional football, which is all true. And we'll see how this story develops, but it's definitely one to watch and definitely one from a West Midlands perspective and a Birmingham perspective we hope gets solved as harmoniously as possible. One mm-hmm. other really quick West Midlands thing to mention away from football, rugby, as we always say, there's no real Birmingham rugby team, at least in the top divisions in England, but the closest team is Wasps playing over in Coventry. They had a really tough defeat in Europe last weekend, losing in the last player of the game to Claremont 25-27 at the Rico Arena, which was a really tough result for them, but Claremont are one of the strongest teams in the competition and Wasps can take heart from that game and hope that they can finish the domestic season strong. But we're going to move away from West Midlands sport and focus a bit more on University of Birmingham sport to finish now. We've got Time on Burford with us, who is the president of the biggest sports club at University of Birmingham. Is that correct, Tymon? Uh I think that's debatable. Um, I, I would like to claim that it's the biggest <laughs> at the university, but um, I, I'm not sure the numbers of other clubs, but we're definitely up there. Okay, well, you said it, not me. I'm sure, I'm sure I've heard you, heard you make that claim before, but I wouldn't expect anything else. And you've recently written an article for us detailing some of your kind of top tips as a sports club president. What made you kind of want to write for the article? And if you want to share any of the really important things you think you need to know, then go ahead. Yeah, so um, what really motivated me to write this particular article was the fact that uh, this is a really busy time for for sports clubs. Um, we're all organising our annual general meetings where we where we vote in uh, the new committee, and there's a lot of people who obviously have put their name down to run for the president for their sports club, uh, but might not know the realities of the uh, of the day to day running of the club because um, we, we try to sell it like it's a great experience and that it's always going to be a lot of fun. But there is a lot of hard work that comes into that. And I feel if people know about uh, those kinds of things, then they can sort of be prepared uh, for the difficulties that they may face. Yeah, there was a lot of really interesting stuff in the article and actually a lot of stuff that I can relate to and Jack can probably relate to as well. Being part of Redbrick, that's also quite a time commitment alongside your degree. And one of the ones that stuck out for me is that your first point, actually, a president cannot do it alone is how it's titled in the article. How important would you say it is for, for leads of sports clubs to really cooperate with the people around, whether that's committee or just general members? Yeah, so cooperation is really key and it is I would say the core principle that the core thing that you do as the president of the sports club um particularly this year it's been very easy for me to do all of the work myself because I haven't been meeting my fellow committee members in person I haven't been meeting the membership in person so um I've had to do a lot of tasks on my own and sometimes it can seem easier to take on all that responsibility because 
you know, as, as people, we don't like to hassle people to do work. A lot of people on your committee will probably be your friends. You don't like to put work on your friends and you want to do it all yourself. But I've sort of realized that I do have to reach out to people and developing that skill of, of delegation, which I talked about in the, in the articles, is a really a key one. Um, and understanding that people have been elected, elected for a reason um, and that your fellow committee members are the best at what they do, uh, always respect their opinion and um, notice their talents. And all of that sort of helps when it comes to delegating tasks. Absolutely. And another thing you mentioned was time management, which is, again, really important. It's such commitment running any society. What are some of kind of your top tips for staying on top of everything, whether that's your degree that's alongside the club you're running or running the club itself? What are some of your top tips on that front? Well, I, I'm sure you know a thing or two, um, being, a, being an editor at Redbrick about time management. Um, but for in terms of running a, a club, in my own experience, it's not something I've realised it's not something I can give solid and robust advice on because it's such a personal thing how you manage your time obviously it comes down to factors like uh, your degrees contact hours your, your personal situation and stuff like that but for me personally the way uh, I manage my time is I'm quite disciplined in, in setting aside specific times of the week where I do club admin and I organize meetings and stuff with my fellow committee members so I can sort of box it in to a, a couple hours a week and that really helps to um, uh, yeah as I said manage my time and manage all of my responsibilities um, it's, it's something that you should always remember um, that it is a voluntary role um, being the head of a sports club or a committee or, um, or a society um, and your degree should always come first. That is always the priority. Um, but you should not feel ashamed to sort of reach out to people if you are struggling, because um, as I said, it's not your job. You are a volunteer. Understanding that is really important when it comes to time management. And also, um, obviously, being president comes with uh, many responsibilities and you talked about like the admin side of, of, of your role as president and you touched on as well your you know you've got to plan for freshers week as president which obviously is, was a little bit different to you because we had a virtual freshers week this year and a virtual sports fair those new presidents coming in they'll have hopefully have um, an in-person freshers fair I mean what advice would you give to them in terms of dealing with the admin side of things and promoting the society during Freshers' Week? Yeah, so admin is really key. It, it can be draining and it, it can be boring as well, but you have to do it. And if you don't do admin correctly, then you, you let the whole team down, really, because that is your responsibility as, as president. Um, when it comes to advertising the club, really understand the values, the ethos, uh, what drew you to the club in the first place and try and sell that, sell it, create a brand, create a club brand and and uh, sort of sell the, the club experience to people. 
but also think logically and pragmatically um, as to how many people you can accommodate in your freshers events. Um, because uh, we struggled with this at the start of the year. We had too many people turning up to our, our sessions uh, for us to effectively manage safely. So we had uh, 120 people turn up to our first 5K event and we only had three of us from committee there. So we were a bit swamped. Um, so uh, I would recommend setting up sort of uh, limits and stuff to who can turn up to your events at the start of the year because interest uh, will be high because people love to join new stuff at the start of the year. Uh, you'll find as, as the weeks go on and the, the temperature starts to cool, a lot of people don't start turning up. Um, but yeah, that's something to take into consideration. Brilliant. Well, that's hopefully very helpful to any prospective sports club presidents for next year. We don't want to give away all of your tips because we've got a brilliant article on the Redbrick Sport website, which is available for everyone to read. So we'll leave it there, Timon. But thank you very much for coming on and giving us a little, a little sneak preview of what, what you've done for us. But I think that'll do it for this episode of the Sally Sportscast. Thank you again to Ali Jawad for the interview. Really enjoyed that. Brilliant to speak to him. Timon, thanks again for coming on. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Kip. Always. And thanks, Jack. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much for listening and we will catch you next time.